Welcome, welcome, welcome. Glad you're here. Happy Christmas season to you all. Merry, Merry Christmas. We can't wait to celebrate Christmas with you on Christmas morning, 9, 1045. Uh, it's going to be a great family time experiencing and honoring Jesus. We are in the Advent season where we're celebrating the arrival of Jesus. Advent is a word that really just means arrival or, or his coming. And we're celebrating his first Advent, his first arrival as we celebrate Christmas. And we, we often will think about themes of hope and joy and love and peace and who Christ is so that we can center on on him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And church is decorated. The kids' rooms are decorated. We've got yummy snacks every Sunday that'll be out in the lobby uh, for you to come early and stick around a little bit late and get to know some of the people and interact and uh, make it festive and help people experience the love of Jesus in just real fun ways. And uh, so we love getting to celebrate Christmas. See, in Advent, when Christ came, it was a coming uh, and a fulfilling of hope, this hope that was longing. And I, I want you to recognize that hope is not optimism. Optimism is like this wishful thinking. Uh, optimism is often circumstantial. But the Christian hope is not circumstantial. The biblical hope is based on the character of Christ, not our circumstances that we find ourselves in. Hope that we hold on to is centered on this arrival of a man by the name of Jesus. And, and we have this hope not only of his arrival, remembering his arrival the first time, but the Christian hope for us is about the renewal of all things when he arrives yet again. See, when Jesus came the first time, he came to begin the completion of the story of redemption of God's people. A redemption that pays a price so that we can begin individually, corporately, to begin to experience the renewal of all things. That is a foretaste of the renewal of everything that is to come in, in his second arrival. In fact, today in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 19, which is where we are. And if you want to follow along today, you can scan the QR code on the screen. It'll uh, help you to follow along and take some notes today. Uh, but when we get into this, you're going to see here in the King Jesus Gospel, as we look at this theme of hope and we, we think about the arrival of Jesus, that Jesus himself alludes to this eternal hope that we have. He alludes to this hope that we have in his second coming when everything in the world is made right again. And we see him seated, enthroned above all things. And so Jesus hints and points to this in today's passage. So let's jump into it. Matthew chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 16. And I want you to look for those themes today. This is what it says, starting in verse 16. It says, someone came to Jesus with a question. Teacher... What good deed must I do to have eternal life? Why ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. But to answer your question, if you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. Well, which ones, the man asked. Well, Jesus replied, it's not murder, don't commit adultery, it's not steal, must not testify falsely, honor your father and mother. Well, love your neighbor as, as yourself. Essentially, Jesus is saying all of them. That's the ones that you need to do. 
And he says, I've obeyed all of these. The young man replied, what else must I do? Notice that Jesus didn't disagree that he had kept these commandments. He goes on to say, Jesus replied, well, if you want to be perfect, then go and sell all of your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad for he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it's very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples, they they were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved? They asked. Jesus looked at them intently and he said, humanly speaking, that's, that's not really possible. But with God, everything is possible. Then Peter said to him, Lord, we've, we've given up everything to follow you. What, what is it that we will get? Jesus replied, I assure you that when the world is made new, when the world is made new, this is our hope, the hope of his second coming, the hope of him making everything new again. And the Son of Man then sits upon the glorious throne You, who have been my followers, will also sit on 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. And everyone, somebody say everyone. Are you an everyone? It wasn't a trick question. I just had to take a deep breath, breathe out. If you did that successfully, you are an everyone. Well done. Everyone who has given up house, brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, Children, property, your own priorities, your prized possessions, your way of thinking, your own opinions, your political agendas, your family traditions on Christmas morning that makes you not want to come to church at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m., but you recognize that Jesus is more important than those traditions. Oh, I'm sorry. That was the expanded Matthew version. Forgive me. And anyone who's given up those things for my sake, a hundred times as much will return and they will inherit eternal life. But many who are the greatest will now be the least among them. And then those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. Jesus was setting them up for a parable that he was about to tell. And we'll get into that parable next week. But this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Jesus, your first coming. Man, Lord, you started and set in motion this redemption, completing and paying the price. Jesus, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart ready to receive and understand what the renewal that you want to do in us looks like and how we can participate and receive it. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen. What is eternal life? 
I think it's important that we would try to define eternal life before we answer the question and look at the response that Jesus gave for how we get eternal life. I think it's important that we define the terms so that we're all starting and thinking about the same thing. Because if I were to pass the microphone around the room and say, hey, what's eternal life? You, you might say something like, well, it's heaven. If I were to say, hey, what's eternal life? You might say, well, it's the, the thing that I received when I walked the aisle and I raised my hand and I prayed the sinner's prayer that one time in that small country church in southeast Kansas that is my ticket out of hell and into heaven. That's what it is. And maybe you would have something similar or something different to say, but I think it's important that we define eternal life not based on what we think eternal life is or what we've been told eternal life is, but based on what Jesus said eternal life is. We said from the onset of this King Jesus gospel, if we try to proclaim a gospel, if we don't start with the gospel that Jesus preached, we might end up with a gospel that Jesus didn't preach. And we want to look at the gospel that Jesus preached to understand what it is that he's inviting us into. When it comes to understanding eternal life, I want to point out a few things. Number one, in this passage alone, you get a snapshot of what the rest of the New Testament does in its completion. The words kingdom of God, eternal life, and salvation are used interchangeably to talk about the same thing. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see predominantly the, the term kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven used. In John's writing, the Gospel of John and other, his other New Testament epistles, you, he'll use the word eternal life or he'll use another word abundant life and I'll get into that word here in a minute. And then the Apostle Paul primarily in his writing uses this word salvation. When we start to think about eternal life, we need to think about quality more than we think about quantity. Eternal life isn't so much about the quantity of life that we'll have, but rather the quality of life that Jesus came to bring, that he came to do, that he came to birth inside of you and for you to experience. The word eternal is the Greek word A-I-O-N-I-O-S, A-I-O-N-I-O-S. It means perpetual. It has a connotation of what is past, but also what is future experienced in the now. It's perpetual. It's an ongoing way of talking about something. It's not just that it is forever and ever to infinity and beyond, but that it is something of quality that is perpetually experienced, that it happens not only in the future, but it can happen right now. It's not just in the future, but it's also right now. And it started in the past, and it's available now. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13.8. It's eternal, it's perpetual, it's ongoing. This word life is the word zoe, Z-O-E, zoe, zoe life. It, often we, you'll hear people talk about, if you've grown up in church, that zoe life is God's life. It's the God life within you. It's the zoe life. Jesus would say in John that it's an abundant life. It's this natural life, but it's also the life to come. It's both and it's something now and something later. Think about eternal life in these terms. God's abundant flourishing now and ongoing. 
What is eternal life? It's the kingdom of God present in you. What is eternal life? It is the salvation, the sozo, the S-O-Z-O in the Greek, the sozo. It is the wholeness, the completion of something. It's the, it's the wholeness of God at work in your life. It is life now. It's the quality of the abundant life that God has given to you now. Let me give you a long-form working definition of eternal life. I'm going to say it slow. You can go back and listen and repeat later. I have a tendency to go fast, so I'm going to say it slow. And if need be, you can slow it down on YouTube on the replay at 0.5 speed instead of the 2.5 speed. What is eternal life? It means God's sovereign, saving rule coming to transform everything, coming to bring the whole creation into a state of being, a new life in which evil, decay, and death itself are being done away with. Oh, that's a good place to say amen. That is what Jesus came to give you. That is what Jesus came to establish in you. It's an experiencing of the flourishing of God's life now and in the future. It's a foretaste of the complete flourishing of redemption and renewal both now and in what is to come in his second advent. It is eternal life, abundant life, God's life, a flourishing life, the kingdom of God present within you. It is the saving work of God. Jesus defines eternal life like this in John 17 and verse 3. And this is eternal life. I don't know how much more clear he can be. And this is eternal life, Jesus says, that they know you, Father, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life, the kingdom of God, salvation itself, the, the flourishing life of God, the abundant life of God. Not a prayer that you pray, not a ticket and highway to heaven instead of a highway to hell. The life that Jesus came to bring is his life flourishing in you both now and ongoingly. It is the renewal that starts now and continues on and on and on and on. And this eternal life is summarized by Jesus in this understanding of what it looks like to have an abiding relationship with God. Not a religion, not a legalistic set of doctrines that you dogmatically hold to and refute and beat other people up when they don't believe it the same way you do, but, but rather an invitation to a relationship. An invitation to something life-giving. An invitation to abide in Christ and experience a flourishing here and now and ongoing. Uh, John Ortberg said it like this, that to know God is to live in a rich, moment-by-moment, gratitude-soaked, participatory life together. It's a relationship. It's this knowing God. It's the difference between knowing something intellectually and knowing something intimately. If you want to experience the life of God, if you want to experience the abundant life of God, if you want to, let me say it again, experience the kingdom of God, salvation, or eternal life, it is 
found and experienced and realized in knowing God intimately, not just intellectually. It's an intimate understanding of something. It's a relationship, something that is embodied, something that is experienced, something that is interactive. It is knowing and, and having an intimate understanding of something, not just an intellectual understanding of something. And many of us prayed a prayer, started memorizing scriptures. You go to church and you are intellectually aware of God, but you are intimately unaware of God. Because intellectually understanding God is just to stimulate something mentally and intellectually and having a belief. But when you want to become intimate with that belief, you have to embody it. You have to interact with it. You have to do something with it. In order to experience it to its full. The question then is, if that's what eternal life is, this relationship, this, this relationship that we embody that flourishes salvation and the kingdom and life of God here and now and in the future, if that's what eternal life is, then how do we get eternal life? What a great question. I love that this young man who was probably quite wealthy, not very many of them in his day, comes to Jesus and asks a question. I pray that we all, with childlike wonder, never stop asking curious, inquisitive, imaginative questions of God. Because you have not yet plumbed the depths of his awareness and his being and his truth and his life. There is more for you to explore in this relationship with God. And I pray that we never stop doing that. And Jesus invites him in and he asks this question, Jesus, what, what must I do to have eternal life? And for those of us who have grown up in the church, especially in the evangelical church, you, you, you know the answer to this question. What must you do to have a do? You don't, you don't need to do anything. You just need to let me do it all. I'm going to be the atoning sacrifice. You don't do any of it. All you have to do is just, just believe and acknowledge it. And it'll be grace that gives you it. And it'll be, you'll go to heaven when you die. Don't need to do anything. But that's not what Jesus said. In fact, Jesus' response kind of feels a lot like spiritual malpractice, if you ask me. Jesus, how dare you say something with such heretical implications as do? You can't, no, 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 Lord, that's not true. We don't do anything. You did it all. But that's not Jesus' response, is it? And we have to wrestle with this for a minute. He didn't reprimand him. He didn't say, I'm going to do it all. He didn't tell him to sit back and just wait till he resurrects and then believe and pray a prayer one day and it'll all, and then he'll have eternal flourishing life in the sun. That's not what he said. Jesus said, actually, if, if you want to experience eternal life, if you want to experience this intimate knowledge and understanding and awareness with God that produces a relationship that flourishes your life to where you experience the abundant renewal of God and his kingdom in its fullness, both here and now and ongoingly into the future. Oh, you must do some things. Do some things. And some of you are sitting there because, you know, you, you've read the Bible for a little while and, and you, you've been there before. You're like, good deeds. No, no, pastor. This sounds an awful lot like works-based righteousness. I thought for sure Ephesians 2, 8, 9 said, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
But verse 10 goes on to say, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So do we do the good deeds that we're supposed to do and created to do do? Or do we not do anything and boast about anything and just sit back and let him do 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 it all? Which one is it, pastor? I'm so glad you asked. See, because God's invitation, remember, to eternal life is an invitation to participate intimately. God is not looking for deadbeat participants. He's not looking for deadbeat followers, deadbeat believers. His invitation is to come and apprentice under him and allow the flourishing life of eternal life of the kingdom of God of salvation that makes us whole and new and renewed to begin to flourish and grow and develop in us both here and now and into the future. John Hortberg says it like this. He says, we're not called just to the work for God. We are called to work with God. I I do believe that, that we cannot behave our way into the kingdom of God. Behavior... Without the, power for those, without the power for those works to produce anything is pointless. Works-based righteousness, 100%. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of works lest any man could boast. Well, let's maybe again go back and wonder what the word grace and faith mean. Let me just take you on a little tangent, can I? Grace, what is grace? Well, many of us would say, well, it's the unmerited favor of God. I agree. If you look at the Greek word for grace, it's the Greek word charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, which literally translated means gift. For by the gift you have been saved through faith. For, For by grace, the gift. Have you ever noticed that Jesus never really talks about grace? But he does talk about another gift. Who is the gift that Jesus promised to give? The Holy Spirit. For by the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Spirit, you have been saved through faith. For by the Spirit of God. What, the, the Holy Spirit is the indication of God's presence in your life. His presence all through Scripture was the mark of his favor resting on a people. The grace of God is actually the spirit of God at work in you. Grace is a personification of the person of the Holy Spirit who abides in you, who is in you. See, it is the Holy Spirit, his abiding presence that saves you, sustains you, strengthens you, seals you, and sanctifies you. All of that we would call salvation. What is salvation? It is the being made whole, flourishing of the kingdom of eternal life within you both now and in the future. It's the spirit at work in you to do those things. Well, if it's the spirit who does it, well, then all we have to do is believe because faith is just a belief, right? Well, according to Hebrews 11, faith is the substance of things hoped for, 
the evidence of things not seen. Faith is a substantive evidence of something that you can't see right now. But you can see the substance of it. And because it's substantive, it's something that you can see and do. It is an embodied allegiance to Jesus that is your faith. What is Jesus trying to tell the rich young ruler? Oh, you've, you've behaved very good. You behaved, but you need the spirit of God at work in you. And what is hindering your spirit, uh, the spirit from being empowering at work in you so that you can continue to live in full allegiance to me are some things that you're holding on to that you have yet to surrender. Friends, eternal life is experienced through a surrendered life. And Jesus' response to this question, what is eternal life, wasn't, you don't need to do anything. I'm going to do it all. No, no, no. Grace is the gift of the Spirit at work in your life to sustain you, strengthen you, sanctify you, and seal you with the power and the presence of God. The unmerited favor of God is the very fact that you are the temple of God and His Spirit dwells on the inside of you, quickening your mortal bodies, allowing you to live in life in the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God who He gave you as a gift at the moment of you saying, I want to repent and move in your direction. He gives us the Spirit as a gift and the Spirit is what produces love Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. It is the spirit who is producing the life of God in you, the Zoe life, the eternal life, the spirit, the life of God dwelling on the inside of you. It is the spirit doing those things. And Jesus says, if you want to experience that, you need to have an embodied faith that requires your surrender, your allegiance. That's, that's what it looks like to, to, to recognize I've been going this way all on my own, figuring it out, trying to do it in my own strength, doing all the good things and the deeds that I need to do. Because going and trying to do it on your own, Jesus said, is impossible to experience the kingdom of God. Oh, but when you receive the gift that God gives in the person of the Spirit. It enables you to now do those same good deeds, but in a way that produces life, that flourishes, that grows, that develops, that expands, that is ongoing now and forever, that it has the abundant Zoe, God life, flourishing and growing you both here and now and will carry you in the life and the world to come. He's saying eternal life, it's experienced as a surrendered life. And, and this, this exchange between this rich young ruler is what is eternal life and how do I get it? Jesus pretty much says, hey, let's deal with your heart because you got a grinchy heart. You're a mean one, mister. Yeah. Because there's some things in the content of your heart that is shrinking your heart. And the shrinking of your heart is causing the life of God to not flourish and grow in you. And if you want to experience the kingdom of God, it's this moment of recognizing your surrender. For this man, it was an issue of greed and money. But for you, it could be an issue of something else. This is why Jesus has spent much of chapter 18 and chapter 19 over the last few weeks talking to us about different things that we substitute for the real thing. 
when we take the gifts that God gives us, this is what we discovered the last three, four weeks. When we take the good things that God gives us and we use it in a way that God doesn't intend for us to use it, we end up doing damage to our own life. And the life of God does not flourish and grow within us. This is why he talks about things like your sexuality. He talks about things like your money. He talks about things like your family. He talks about things like your unwillingness to forgive. He talks about things like your own self-knowledge, not being willing to humble yourself like a little child to experience eternal life, the kingdom of God, salvation. It's your inability and unwillingness to surrender the thing that you're holding onto the most so that you can embrace the God who you need the most. It's about trying on your own measures and efforts to grab a hold of the good life that only can be grabbed when you reach for the relationship with God that he's inviting you into. Is this starting to make sense a little bit for you? I hope some light bulbs are starting to click and go off in your mind. This exchange wasn't really about money. It was about his heart. But this man's heart was enamored and encaptured and his allegiance was towards his money instead of his savior. His allegiance was towards his money and his possessions and his comfort posh life more than it was to denying himself, taking up his cross and following the man, Jesus. He wanted to follow the money instead of following the man. It was about his heart. And eternal life is only experienced when we walk in surrendered heart. Greed is an interesting thing. So we enter this Christmas season and it's the season of giving. It's the season of joy. It's a moment where we like intentionally try to put ourselves in a position to like bless others and be kind to others. And, and I love that. But I want us to talk just for a minute about the grinchy greed that lives on the inside of all of us if we're not careful. This greed is, if I were to define it, I would say it's like this, that greed is a manifestation of the spirit of fear and an attitude of arrogance. That's what greed is. Greed isn't about a certain amount of money in your 401k. That once you get to this moment and point in your 401k, well, now you're in danger of being greedy. No, no, no. Greed is an equal opportunity possessor -er. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. In other words, it doesn't matter how much you have or how much you don't have in terms of quantity. There is a Grinch that can grow in all of us. See, greed is this attitude that is manifest of fear. Fear that says, I won't have. Fear that says, I can't have enough. That I'll, I'll, I'll miss. If, I, if I'm generous, if I do this, then I won't have this. It's also an attitude of arrogance and entitlement. I'm going to talk more about this attitude next week when we unpack the parable that Jesus tells us about. But I need you to understand that at the core of your greed is actually fear and arrogance. That's at the core and many of us would much more be, be much more readily willing to say, I struggle with fear, than we were to stand up and say, I got a problem with some greed. But at the root of the greed is this fear. It's this attitude of pride and arrogance. We'll talk about it more, but, but I think it's important that we understand that Jesus is talking about greed because greed is an issue of our heart 
not an issue of our bank account. And what's in our heart often keeps us from surrendering to the life that God is trying to give us. Why? You might be wondering, like, what, why does money even matter in the context of eternal life? Well, well, I'll say it again, because money is one of those things that is a gift from God. And any gift from God that isn't handled in a way that God wants you to handle it begins to handle you and do damage to your heart, do damage to your soul. It does damage to the life of God that wants to grow in you. It does damage to the eternal life, the kingdom of heaven, the salvation work of God that Jesus has tried to begin in you. And we don't want that to occur. Greed is this grabbing for more. It just grabs for more. Greed is never satisfied because a little bit more is all that it needs. I just need a little bit more. I need to reach the next level of my multi-level marketing thing. I just need to get to the next role in my company. I just need to get to the next pay raise. If we could just get to the next tax bracket, if I could just get one more truck to drive around, you know, kind of more just like a beater because I don't want to drive my nice one around the farm. I just need a more beater one on the farm. I, I know I've got three trucks, but I just one more would be sufficient. I just need more golf clubs. If I had one newer golf, no, actually, that's the bad example because that really does matter, and that's not an issue uh, in our hearts. Green grass from our, you may have heard the anecdotal illustration of the best way to capture a monkey. The best way to capture a monkey is to, to have a, a, an open box or a jar or something and put something in the bottom of it that the monkey wants, a banana, something like that. And the opening at the top is just enough for his hand to go down and he sees it and he wants it and he can't help it. He's born to want more. He's born to want this. He's born to, to need this and crave this. It's, it's part of sustaining life. And he sees it and he wants it and he has to grab for it. So he reaches his hand into it and grabs it. But the minute he grabs it, he can't get his hand out of it. And now he's trapped because his instinct on the inside is to grab it and hold it because he needs it. He's got to have it. It's got to, I just, it's what I need. He grabs it. For us, it's probably not a banana. Maybe it's something of more value. And we just like, I just got to, I'm going to grab it. And we grab it and we need it and we got to have it. And who texted me? What did somebody say? I'm not cool if I don't know, if I don't, if I don't have what's going on and I just need this. And maybe for you, it's, it's, it's not a phone. It's not technology. It's more status, more fame, more more ability to dress the right way and look the right way and be the right thing. It's a grab. We grab for more. Jesus doesn't say money is bad. The issue isn't the money. The issue is the heart. Jesus doesn't tell every person who wants to follow him, oh, if you want to follow me, sell everything. Jesus doesn't ask you to take a vow of poverty. He doesn't. It, money is not the problem. The problem is our heart. It's our greed in our heart. And, and it, it, just looking at this passage, you'll see a few things as it relates to the eternal life, the flourishing life. Like greed prevents us from being trusted with responsibilities in the kingdom later. Jesus said, if you're willing to give up the things that you long for so much, houses, families, mothers, possessions, riches, whatever it is that you have to give up so that your heart is released so that you can let go of the thing that you think you want the most and need the most and crave the most so that you can receive the Savior who produces the life that you long for the most. Jesus 
Greed has a way of clouding the picture of God's image as a generous God. When we're greedy, we distort the picture of God for the people around us. This is why I love as a church every year at Christmas. We don't take an offering for ourselves. We give in an offering with which we will give away for other uses. Because at the heart of this Christmas season, we want to remind ourselves of the generosity of God and live in a way that demonstrates that to the world that is around us. How amazing is it that at Christmas there may be people who will walk into church who have never walked into church before, may never walk in again, but they'll walk in here and here. We're giving as a family and as a body, not so that we can get something, but so that we can give something. What a presentation of the gospel to people who may never hear the gospel again. We get to do that. I love the generosity of our church. I love that we are a generous people. Sometimes as a church, we've been able to be benevolent and give in very amazing ways this year. And because I don't want to draw attention to specific needs or specific people, I just want you to know that we have met practical needs within our church and within our community because there are people who choose to live a generous life. And because we have said, Lord, we're not going to hold it ourselves, we're going to give it, and we're going to be a distribution center to the people who need help and healing and hope, and we're going to give and we're going to bless, and we're not going to think twice about it, and we're not going to add strings attached to it, we're not going to manipulate, beg them to do, no, we're just going to bless and give and meet needs where we need to meet needs. And we've done it as a church and you've done it individually. Some of you haven't even told us about it. Where you from your own goodwill recognize, I say there's a need, let me meet that need. Because you've recognized not that money produces greed, but, but that money is a gift to be used in a way to honor God the way God wants it to be used. This is what the kingdom of God gets to do in presenting an image of a generous God. We'll talk more about this a little bit next week, but I need you to understand that greed, when you mishandle the gift of money, you, pre- you reveal yourself to God to be untrustworthy with the greatest gift, which is people. What did Jesus tell the disciples? You've given it all up, I know. Greed is not an issue for you in your heart. And because you've done the right thing with the contents of your heart, I can trust you to be a judge and influence people in the life and the world to come in a way that you are trusted. Friends, our lives and our stewardship right here, right now, is an interview for roles that we get to play in the life in the world that is to come. And we'll see it later in some more parables that Jesus tells about what you do with a little tells Jesus what, with what he can give you next or what you don't get next. It's a powerful thing when we recognize it. Money matters to eternal life because it's an inch issue of our heart that isn't surrendered. Why? Because we're grabbing something instead of living open-handed with something. The question is, how do we reverse the poison of greed in our life? Is there an anti-venom to the poison of greed? Yes. 
Are you ready? The anti-venom to the poison of greed that impacts our heart is intentional generosity. Maybe you're sitting here and you're recognizing, man, I, I got a little Grinch inside of me. There's, there's a little bit of greed and my desire for more and better and new and this and it's about me and I recognize where I'm afraid when it comes to finances and the economy and I recognize the fear and that's linked to greed or it produces greed and it's an element of greed and, and I don't want that pastor how do I get this poisonous venom how do I get it out of me how do I get it out of me how, to where it's not driving me it's not consuming me it's not motivating all of my life I, I think there are three components to intentional giving number one be systematic this is where it requires trust for me and my family, that is what we would call the biblical tithe. We're systematic. The first of everything just goes back to the Lord. Just, it's our system. We use online giving so that I don't have to think about it. I get an email on the Monday that I get paid every other week, and it says, hey, thank you for your donation. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for helping me remove greed from my life systematically. One automated email at a time. But it's... There's a pre-decided measure, a guardrail against greed, against fear, against arrogance when it comes to possessions. It's an autumn, it's systematic. Once you've developed being systematic, here's another component of it, be spontaneous. Hey, here's a need. Awesome, let me spontaneously meet this need. Oh, I heard, heard somebody's down on the, let me, let me, Oh, we're doing something as a church at Christmas? Well, I wasn't, I wasn't really planning on it. It's outside of my normal system of giving. Let me give something extra. I'm, I'm being spontaneous in this moment. This is a great place to begin because there will always be needs and things around you that you recognize, man, I, I got to, let me just, let me be generous here. Let me, let me, much I have been blessed with. Freely I have received. Let me freely we freely give it. Just spontaneous. Be systematic. Be, be spontaneous. But can, can, I, can, I, can I push on something just for a minute? And that's, that's this, that many people wait until, well, when I hear a need, I'll meet it. Can I, can I let you in on something? Being systematic develops the strength so that you can be spontaneous. If you wait until you hear a need, it's not really about being generous. It's about you feeling good that you know exactly how the need was met. It actually is still about you being at the center of the need. If all you do is give spontaneously, it's still about you. And it requires a lot more trust to be systematic in that way. Be systematic. Be spontaneous, though. And here's the last one. Be sacrificial. This is the one where you really know greed gets squashed in your life. When God says, hey, this, this is going to hurt a little bit, but I want you to be obedient anyways. Hey, this person, this single mom, uh, their car broke down. You've got four. Give her one. But that's my favorite. It was inherited by my mother, and 
That's all I have left of her. Just it hurts a little bit. Do you want me to give how much at Christmas? What? That's funny. I think that's why the Bible talks about being a hilarious, cheerful giver. <laughs> God, for real? Like, that's what you, like, you want. <laughs> when you give in a way that actually hurts you, you're just nailing the coffin on the greed that's growing within you. Every once, I'm not saying every time you give. No, 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 no. Just, don't be manipulated. God's not after that. But you can be systematic. You can be spontaneous. You can be sacrificial. And in those steps, you are taking the anti-venom. Bit by bit, action by action, obedient by obedient, you are dealing with the anti-venom, with the venomous sense of greed that can grow and poison your life. And it's the way of Jesus that we want to walk in. Can, can I ask you a question? Back to our monkey. What's holding you back from experiencing the life in the kingdom that you long to see from the flourishing life? Is greed the thing? Are you holding something so tight? Are you blaming the jar and blaming society and blaming the powers that be and blaming the, the person who put the trap there and, and you're blaming all the big corporations and you're, you're blaming your boss and you're blaming your upbringing and you're blaming your DNA. You're blaming all of these things that, that has created the childhood uh, uh, mentality to, to, to grab this and hold this and make you, I'm never going to go without. My kids are never going to go without. I'll never, never, never as fear the thing. What is it that's holding you're holding on to that's holding you back. Friends, I want you to know that within your grasp is the power to let go. And when you choose to live with an open hand, listen, that's when your heart opens. Why? Because the grip that you have on money reveals the grip that has your heart. Let me say it another way. It reveals the God that has your heart. And when you open it, you open it up to the God of all life to begin to flourish your life. Would you stand with me? And I just want to pray over us today. I just want to pray over you, pray over our hearts this Christmas, pray over our lives that we would experience the flourishing life of God. Father, I thank you for family and friends today. I thank you, Lord, that you're speaking to us. I ask Jesus that you would show us what is the thing that we're holding on to the most. Maybe for some in the room, it is a greed issue. And Lord, you want to deal with the Grinch in us. God, maybe for others, it's something else that we hold on to and hold so dear in our lives and that's what you're asking us to let go of today so that we can encounter you in a new way and that the eternal life, the kingdom life, the flourishing life, the salvation of God would grow in us as we open our hand to the gift of your spirit living within us. Lord, I pray that 
none of us would walk away from this place without a step to take, an action step. So Lord, show us what that would look like. And Lord, I pray blessing over your people today. I pray that the Lord would bless them and keep them. I pray the Lord would make his face shine on them and be gracious to them. I pray the Lord would lift up his countenance towards you and give you great peace. I pray this in the name of the Father who loves us, the Son who died for us demonstrating love, in the name of the Holy Spirit, whose love abides in us forever, we pray. And the people of God said, amen. Hey, we love you. If you need prayer for anything, our team, they are available. Especially if you need healing, please let us pray. We love you. Go in God's grace and peace. Have a great Sunday. Hey, friends and family. I hope today's message was life-giving for you. I want to ask you to take a next step and go ahead and click the subscribe button so you never miss another chance to have an encounter with God. And while you're at it, take another step and share it with a friend. Maybe post it on your social network or text a coworker the link. And when you do that, you are partnering and get to be a part of seeing faith come to life in them. Hey, if Faith Church has made an impact in your life, if these messages are helping you gain traction in your faith, would you consider partnering with us financially? When you do that, it helps us widen our reach so that more people can have an encounter with the real Jesus. You can find information and ways to give on our central hub, faithchurchks.org. If you're if you live in the Southeast Kansas region, we'd love to see it in person at one of our Sunday services. You can find those times on our hub as well, faithchurchks.org. Hey, remember this, God is for you and we love you.